Guys, I want to begin uh, uh, with something really in um, really in addition to uh, the study on Romans, and I think you will. Um, I, I hope I hope it will benefit you, and I hope I don't rain on anybody's parade. But um, um, in the Christian community right now, the hot number, the hot discussion, the thing that seems to be captivating the attention of so much. Uh, evangelical fervor right now is, of course, the Mel Gibson movie, um, The Passion, uh, which is to be released a week from tomorrow, I believe. And, um, uh, of course, there was an interview on Monday night that, uh, how many of you saw that interview? Um, I, I want you to know I did not see it, so, um, uh, but I did have a long uh, uh, discussion with the staff this afternoon concerning it, or concerning the interview. Um, I want to make a couple of three or four observations, and then I want to tell you about something, and then um, um, try to try to at least guide your thinking in response to it. Uh, first of all, this kind of always tickles me. Um, if you're a legalist, you cannot go to this movie because it is rated R, and you know that uh, the Bible teaches that you can't go to R-rated movies. So y'all can't go. Uh, um, the rest of us can, but um, it, um, I, I always like to get that dig in. Um, <laughs> Uh, secondly, I want you to know that it was uh, it was reported uh, to me. I had like four phone calls on Tuesday concerning the interview, and that there was a couple of statements that were made that uh, gave people cause for concern um, about Mel Gibson's testimony, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I I can't say for sure. I can only say this: that I have um, uh, I have uh, been in touch with people whose opinion I do respect. And they um, have a sense that what you are dealing with is a very converted man. Um, the comment you may have heard is, so you don't need Jesus to get to heaven. Um, did you hear that, that comment that was on the interview? And um, uh, it was the opinion of several that, um, uh, that, they were, that, the, that the media made that say what they wanted it to say. But anyway, I just want you to know, I have, I have seen in print... Um, some concerns about uh, Mel Gibson's testimony. I do not know. I just know that some people that I respect have a sense that you're dealing with a converted man, and I can go with that. Now, of course, if he made such a comment uh, uh, that you can't get to heaven without Jesus, that would be uh, a real cause for concern. But let's just, at this moment, uh, give the man the benefit of the doubt and that he was... um, uh, and, and I have had a little bit of a skirmish with the media, and I do know that my, my, uh, my position is when the media calls, just say no. Um, anyway, but guys, here is uh, something that is my major concern about the movie. And, I, and I, again, I hope this doesn't rain on your parade, but I, I think you've got to keep this in mind. I have here an article um, that, in fact, uh, you can see it's yellow. I've had this in my files a little over 30 years. Um, this was a, 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 an article that was published in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, concerning the death of Jesus Christ. It, was, it, was, uh, it appeared in 66. Goodness gracious. Is that right? Maybe that's... Anyway. Um, Maybe... It was read at a chapel service that I attended at Reform Seminary when I was a seminarian, and um, 
at one of our chapel services, it was read concerning a physical description of the death of Christ. And it's got all these pictures of, uh, you know, the, the body and, and the, um, the diaphragm and the, um, um, uh, the wrist. The ankles, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and, and how Jesus died, and et cetera. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I wouldn't give you this. It's, it's, it's distressing. It's upsetting. It is, um, it is it's, it's blood and guts. And I, and I listened uh, as it was read very patiently and was impacted by it. But um, um, here's, here's the warning. Here's the concern that I, that I have. Ladies and gentlemen, from what I can understand, now this is a little bit secondhand, so you can correct me afterwards. I'm sure you will. Um, but um, that, that the statement was made that, um, that this is awfully gruesome, uh, that Saving Private Ryan, that this uh, exceeds sa- Saving Private Ryan in terms of its uh, graphic portrayal of blood and guts. I, I didn't see Saving Private Ryan for that reason, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not trying to discourage you from looking at blood and guts. If you want to look at blood and guts, you can go right ahead. You have a good time. Here's the point, though. There is no redemptive value in Jesus' pain. That, ladies and gentlemen, is not what saved us. Being impressed with the great excruciating pain of crucifixion is not what redeemed you. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, the church of Jesus Christ has examples of people who went through crucifixion far worse than Jesus. People who stayed on that cross far longer. Very honestly, there are records of people going to their crucifixion more boldly and more courageously than Jesus. They, they have no records of a, a Gethsemane experience where they said, let this cup pass from etc., etc. People can be produced who faced crucifixion, if you want to talk about human courage, better than did Jesus. That is not what saves us. It is the fact that the Father saw fit to place the sins of his people on the Son and then allowed the Son of Man to experience hell for us. The the cry of dereliction from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That, ladies and gentlemen, is... The Father punishing the Son for sin. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the thing that frightened him was not the pain of crucifixion. It was that he would bear the sins of his people. And that thought was horrific to him. Now, All I'm trying to say is, folks, there is going to be a carnal impact of this scene, just like Saving Private Ryan did. And and I'm not against that. Uh, Very frankly, I think you and I need to pray 
that God will use this movie for the saving of many. But understand that it must be set in the context of redemption. And redemption is not to be equated with human pain or suffering. Redemption is to be found in what Jesus accomplished Godward. What he did in satisfying the debt that my sin deserved. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what saves. Not that Jesus endured excruciating pain. Um, so, keep that in mind. And, and um, may I say, um, one of the things that I want you to know, too, is that Grace Venture, and I think you know, I, I hope you're getting a little bit of picture about Grace Venture, but Grace Venture has taken some of the monies of Grace Venture and bought a thousand copies of this book. As I understand it, I could be wrong, I think I'm right about this, but John Piper wrote this in a paper that is a, um, a, a let me just call it a paper, a, a um, thesis. And it was originally entitled, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Had to Die. Um, in conjunction with the outcoming of this movie, they put it into book form, um, and I, I'm sure it's been out a while, but that's what you have here. 50 little vignettes about why Jesus had to die. And 50 reasons why Christ suffered and died. And um, Grace Venture has bought these things, and we want, they want to give them to you free. But here's what their intent, I think, and, and, I, and again, correct me, there's some Grace Venture committee members in here. The, the purpose of this book is not for your benefit. But what we're asking you to do before you take, before you give these away, read some of it and make sure that this is something that you want, that you know, that you know what you're giving away. Now, I, I can say to you, John Piper is one of my heroes, and I think you can trust everything in here, but I think you need to know that. And I don't think you should give them away. What we're the ideal is something like this. By the way, we don't want you to give these to your Christian friends. What we're hoping is that the movie will make an impact. And that we can take advantage of that by putting this into their hands. Because here, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to find the answers for what they just saw. Um, now, what we've tried to do, what I've been asked to tell you, and I've, we've already had, um, we've been, they bought a thousand copies. And I've been asked to, to ask you to take one per adult in your family. Not because we don't want you to have them. We want all a thousand of them given away. But we want to be able to let the whole congregation have access to these books and use them not to stick in your library. If you stick this in your library, I want you to know you ought to come back over here and pay $7.99 to the bookstore. These are free to you to use to reach people for Jesus Christ. 
That's what these are designed for. That is, that's what Grace Venture has designed. So, um, there, there's, there's a little stamp in there that they've put, um, a gift from you, for uh, you from Grace Venture. And then there's a little, I didn't know they were going to put my picture on this thing. That really irritates me um, because I, I feel sorry for you having to look at me now, but these poor folks. But I've written a little note, and, and it goes in a little book, and you give it to people. You know, I'm hoping that, guys, these are not for your converted friends. Do you understand? This is, this is to, designed to reach people. That's what we're hoping will come of this. As they see the movie and say, what was that? Hmm, why don't you read about it? Now, and at least at this moment, we'd like for you to limit it to one per adult. But now, down the road, if we've got some left over, we don't want them. We just don't want to deny anybody the opportunity of having them. Now, any questions about this? Any questions about that effort? Yes, ma'am. As I understand it, now correct me, someone who knows more than I, that basically what you have there is simply the record and account of the last two hours of Jesus' life, three hours of his life, and it is simply designed to show and depict. It's not designed, but it depicts the, um, the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Is that close to true? 12 hours. Last 12 hours? But now let me say, Harden, uh, every, I mean, people that I know and love and respect, they have seen it and they have said, Whoa. I mean, that it is, it is full of impact. But ladies and gentlemen, the Holy Spirit saves, not movies. The Holy Spirit has got to take that information and turn it into the gospel somehow. And he can do that without our help. But what we've got here is a plan that we hope that he will see fit to use. Um, so those are all thousand of them. If we stuck a thousand of them into non-Christians' hands, man, uh, would that be exciting. Got it? Yes, sir. Brian, are they upset that it's anti-Semitic? No, I never heard that name. Good. Good, because, the, you know, it, guys, Gentiles put him to death just like Jews did. Very frankly, you put him to death just like I did. So I, but I think the media can, you know, distort anything. Uh, you know, I woke up to, to my AOL account on, on Monday. Uh, no, it was Tuesday. And um, the thing on the AOL screen was, has Gibson gone too far? I mean, you can strip somebody's top off at the Super Bowl and expose, but Gibson went too far because he's, it, it, I'm telling you guys, it, it, uh, it irritates me. But anyway, I hope you understand our, our, by the way, guys, applaud your Grace Venture Committee. This was not my idea. This is the very thing that we hope the Grace Venture Committee would begin to do. And to give us ways to do outreach. And they've done it. They've done it and they've done it 
creatively and, and purposefully and, and excitingly and, and I think perfectly consistent with who we are as a church. And they're going to be applauded for, for this idea. And um, by the way, you know, just because I'm, I'm just, just full of myself. I know three of you. Are there four of you here? Would you please stand? You members of the Grace. There's one of them right over there. Eric, uh, I know uh, Ed's here. Oh, Andrew, I didn't see Andrew. I thought Jim, uh, is Jim here? Jim's not here. Those are the people, ladies and gentlemen, that came up with this idea, not me. Um, so celebrate along with us. I just think it's a wonderful thing. Now, let's take the last 18 minutes or 20 minutes and look at Romans 7, verse 11. Understand again, gang, that Paul is trying to demonstrate the proper functioning role and purpose of the law. There has been the suggestion made that the law is sin. It's, uh, that, that suggestion was made in verse 7. At least he thought it was being made, and he's trying to anticipate that, uh, that objection and then trying to demonstrate the real purpose of the law, that it, it is not sin. It plays a wonderful role. And he's explaining that role. Verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. Let me try to explain. And, I, uh, of course, it's hard to fit it back into the context. And that's one of the downsides of a, uh, a Bible study like this. But, guys, um, Paul is saying that the... the um, the fault does not lie with the law. The fault lies with what sin does with the law. Uh, Israel, as a nation, had concluded certain things about the law and had misused and, and wrongly taught the law, which is mentioned in, in chapter 9, verses 31. In Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness uh, has not attained, etc., etc. That is, Israel wrongly used the law as a way of life, as a way to attain life, as a way to procure eternal life. Never was it designed for that purpose, but that's what Israel had done with it. Um... But the law, in Paul's case, had played its proper role in that it produced in Paul a sense of death. In fact, there's an interesting statement that Paul makes in 1 Timothy. You know, let me just read it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good if it's used rightly, but if it's used wrongly. It's bad. And Israel had used it wrongly. Israel had turned the law into something as a means by which they might obtain life. But it was never intended to be used like that. It was intended to be used in the way that it was, it, it, it ultimately got used in the life of Paul. It was the law that produced that sense of death in him. Um, and, and sin, um, sin told him, that the law could save him. Sin told him that the law could produce life. He expected life and found death. He expected happiness and he found misery. He expected holiness and he found an increased corruption. He thought that the law would produce life. And then it didn't. 
But it was sin, we're told, in for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And by it, it killed me. Sin is the, is, the, um, is the offender. Sin is the perpetrator of the crime. Not the law. But sin used the law to deceive me. And it deceived me by telling me that it could produce life. But then I found it produced death. Sin is the problem, ladies and gentlemen. Not the law, as is being suggested in verse uh, 7. Well, the law must be sin. Paul says, no, no, the problem is not the law. But it's sin's use of it. That's the problem. It's sin that tried to convince me that through it I could gain everlasting life. But uh, I ultimately came to the conclusion that that was a dead end. No, guys, <clears throat> I'm suggesting to you that's the message of verse 11. And what I want to do is I want to, I, want to, I want to make two observations, and then I want, to look at, I want to go back to verse 11 before we close, because there's something else stated in there that I want you to see. But just two quick kind of applications or summaries of this section, um, verses uh, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Guys, um, in our culture... We're so riddled with a, um, a humanistic understanding of life. It's humanism that has told us that the answer to the problems that we face as a culture, that the, humanism's answer for the immorality in, that is all around us is more education. Um, and if that isn't working, then let's just give some more money so that we can have some more education. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, those very same people acknowledge that the problems that we face as a culture continue to worsen over time. I, I say that because I want to say this. The problem is not education. The problem is sin in a man's heart. And no amount of money on education is going to solve that. Law can't fix Anything. Anything. Um, there's a bunch of sloganeering out there about just say no. Well, you know what? Apparently nobody said no. Because drugs continue to increase, illegitimate births continue to increase, and uh, AIDS continues to increase, etc., etc. Because it's not education that's going to overcome it. By the way, just, in, just as I thought as an illustration of law can't fix anything. Did you see the news last night about... This, this heartache that the Roman Catholic Church is facing about the, the priests that have uh, abused children. And this, the, uh, the diocese in the, in the West came up with a report and, and, that, and they listed the, the, uh, the priests that had been um, guilty of abusing children. And um, one of the men that was on the list for abusing the children was one of the men whose assigned responsibility it was to enforce the law about not abusing children. The law was in place, and the man who was intended to enforce the law against uh, priests to abuse children, he too was a child abuser. Law can't fix anything, ladies and gentlemen. Law can't fix it because sin takes occasion and it uses 
even the law. This glorious piece of reflection and revelation of the character and nature of God. It uses even that to damn us. So, law is not the problem. The problem is sin. And you know, guys, just as an aside or kind of another application, there are a lot of professing Christians and, and, and and a lot of Christians who are still in bondage to law because they, they, they put themselves back under law. And let me tell you what I mean by that. It is a, it is a self-salvation that they have adopted. And, I, and I'm using the term salvation not to mean that they're trying to save themselves for eternity in heaven, etc., etc. But there's a, in, in, as they flesh out their relationship to Jesus Christ, there is this self-produced effort on their parts to try and produce some sense of meaning, some sense of worth, and they do it by what they would consider to be good performance. I can demonstrate my value by good performance, by high standards of morality. Folks, I'm not opposed to high standards of morality. I'm simply saying the standards will never be observed. Unless the Holy Spirit of God grants power to produce that observance. The law itself is not going to do you any good. But we're out there performing like, um, like God's whole view of me depends upon how well I perform, how well I obey. I'm telling you guys, Paul says in Romans 6 that I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Well, we can come to Christ and then we move ourselves back under law. That's a tragedy in my mind. All right, but back to the text. I want you to see one other thing and then I'll quit. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceive me. Now, guys, th- that's not the first time that Paul has mentioned that sin deceives. He's mentioned it in 2 Corinthians 11. He's mentioned Hebrews. Well, he didn't write Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, in spite of huge investments, in spite of huge capital outlay in terms of education, sin continues to advance. Why? Because sin deceives. The great power of sin, ladies and gentlemen, is that it deceives us. The great power of sin is its deceptive power. Sin deceived me into thinking that the law would save, would save me. And it couldn't. The great power of sin is that it deceives us. It deceives us even into thinking that I can save myself by observing it, when in fact, that will damn me. Now, if sin can do that, if it can deceive me to that point, oh gosh, what else could it deceive me over? You know, there are, there are some who are convinced that because they've sinned and because they sin so grievously in their past that there's really no use in trying to change because they're already their situation is already helpless. You know, that's another piece of how sin deceives. 
Uh, another one of sin's deception is something that we've talked about in here several times called antinomianism. To suggest that our actions, our behavior really doesn't matter because you know we're under grace. And so you can live any way you want to. Think of that, ladies and gentlemen. Just think of that. What a sleight of hand. That is to tell people, it doesn't make any difference how you live because you're under grace. Sin is so powerfully deceptive that it can convince us to go out and live what gut lives because we're under grace. Just a sleight of hand. Just a, um, a, a, a piece of um, um, miss. You, you know, that's how, they, that's, how they, um, that's how a pickpocket works, ladies and gentlemen. You know, pickpocket wants you to concentrate on something that he's doing with this hand while he's picking your pocket with this one. You know, that's what they did to us in Brock. They were helping us with our luggage while their hand was going behind to get my wallet. And so we're looking over here. Oh, isn't that nice of you to help us with our luggage? But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, sin does that. It picks your pocket. Because it says... Oh, grace, 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 grace. And by the way, I'm a a huge proponent of grace, as I hope you already know. But sin is so deceptive that it even takes grace and deceives us with it. With a little sleight of hand, a little twist, a little spin on the words. And we're out there thinking, well, I can live anyway. I want to because I'm under grace. That's because we've been deceived by sin. Sin deceives us about sin itself as if it's really no big deal you know i am um, if my marriage is going to stay um, brimming with excitement i need to go have an affair i really need that affair you know um take a look at madison avenue's uh, portrayal of the high life you know guys nobody is supposed to ask where all that's going to lead me. Nobody's supposed to ask about any consequences of the high life. Sin assures us that, that everything's going to be fine and, and nothing will ever happen. Uh, and, and, and in our culture, hell is an unthinkable idea. You know, guys, um, you, you, you <laughs> sin deceives us to the point where even sin itself looks good. And tolerable. And okay. And something we need. There are pulpits all over the land telling us that don't that we're not supposed to think of the cross in terms of some kind of substitutionary atonement. No, 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 no. The, the cross is some kind of tableau of the love of God. Well, a piece of deception. Do you see the love of God portrayed there? Yeah, yeah, you do. But that's not what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. It's about the sin-bearing Savior. And so don't talk about justice or wrath or, or uh, any type of the righteousness of God because the cross is this tableau of the love of God for mankind. And people sitting in pews are deceived by using the cross 
because that's the nature and the power of sin in us, ladies and gentlemen, to deceive us. It is the nature and the power of the evil one that stands behind it to disguise himself as an angel of light. And we come to silly conclusions that sin doesn't matter. I need it. It doesn't matter how I live. It's a tableau of love. And on and on and on it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, the, um, the only hope that any of us have is that God, by the power of the indwelling Spirit, through the testimony of His Word, will lead us to positions of truth and righteousness and a God-honoring lifestyle. Apart from that, we'll all be deceived. Father, I do pray that you will um, warn us about the deceptive power of sin and that you will um, prevent us from our eyes being misted over, smudged over by, by sin's wooing of us and sleight of hand and twisting a phrase and de-emphasizing one thing so it can emphasize another. Oh God, make us people whose blood is biblene. That what flows through the very veins of our soul is the truth as described in this book. And then Holy Spirit, give us minds to see it, hearts to understand it, and wills to apply it. Oh God, I do commit this effort on the part of Gracie Van to uh, take occasion... Uh, to try and reach people through um, an event. And I pray that you will use the event. I pray that the, um, the, the whole world will be impacted. But Father, it will be a splash in the pan if the Holy Spirit does not uh, own it and see fit to use it. So we pray that you, Holy Spirit, will grab hold of this and use it to produce... Nothing short of revival. And Holy Spirit, if you see fit to do so, could we be involved? We would love to be a part of something that you're doing that is expansion of the kingdom of Christ. We'd like to watch you work. We, um, we're not asking for great things. We're asking to be next to the great God as He moves in and about among us. We... Uh, long to be a part of the building of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would allow us that privilege. And we make our prayer, of course, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you and good night. The books are here for you. Have at them.